good. Glad to be here. If you would, open up to Mark chapter 14 with me. We're going to flip through a few places today, but we'll be in Mark 14 for the, for the main part of the day. And as you, as you turn there, um, you're going to see today that we're coming to a, to a major turning point in the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark. Uh, between chapter 13 and chapter 14 is uh, kind of like a hinge in the book where we're pivoting to a new part of, um, a, a, a new part of the story of Jesus' life. And so many of you know, most of you probably know that, um, that I don't work here at the church full-time. I would love to, and hopefully that'll be a possibility at some point, um, but right now it's not. And so I have another job. Um, and uh, when I moved back here from Oklahoma recently, I got another job in Mount Washington. And when I began working there, um, I had to go through a training course. It was about almost two weeks long, eight hours a day for two weeks just about, and we learned about um, different policies, and we learned about uh, different, uh, about the history of the company and kind of how the company works and, and all this different stuff. And it was, it was really, really um, beneficial. It was really, really helpful. Taught me about the company a lot. Taught me about uh, the job I was going to be doing and about how to do uh, the, the job that I was hired to do. Um, however, there was a time when the training was over, right? At the end of the two weeks, the training was over and it was time to actually go to work and begin doing what I had been hired uh, to do. And I couldn't help but, uh, but think this way as I was thinking through Mark 14 over the last couple of weeks. Um, for 13 chapters now in the Gospel of Mark, uh, he's been telling us about who Jesus is. Uh, we've learned about Jesus' birth. We've learned about uh, him growing up. He's told us uh, about some of the things that Jesus taught and some of the things that, that Jesus preached. And now we come to a turning point in the Gospel of Mark uh, one commentator speaking about this turning point says, now is the time for talking, or he says, now the time for talking is over, and it's time for the events to unfold, which Jesus has insistently predicted since he was in Caesarea Philippi. The time for talking is over, the time for doing has, has come. Um, these last few chapters of, of Mark are all focused on, uh, on what happened in Jerusalem during the last week of Jesus' life. And so we're turning now to chapter 14, Chapter 14, 15, 16 is this kind of uh, in-depth, um, uh, magnifying glass type look at this last week of Jesus' life in, uh, in Jerusalem. So if you will, if you've got your Bible open to Mark 14, um, let's read the first two verses together. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 933. Mark says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful to be here this morning. God, we're, we're thankful that, uh, that you've worked in our hearts and worked in our lives, that we want to be here and, and we want to gather with your people and worship together. And God, I thank you that that's even a possibility. God, I thank you that uh, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come here this morning in this place, in this building, and we can sing songs to you, and we can pray to you, and we can look at your word together. And, and, and God, you accept those things. You accept those, those feeble, even, even sinful offerings of ours because Jesus has died for us. 
and has died to cleanse us. And God, we thank you for that. And I pray this morning as we're looking at your word, God, I pray that your word will be strong and powerful here among us in our hearts this morning. God, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would uh, cause us to, to, uh, to love you more, cause us to follow Jesus better. Uh, Father, cause us to, to see our sin more clearly, to repent of it. And Father, cause us to see and understand the gospel even more clearly as well. God, we thank you so much for Jesus, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. As we look at, uh, at these two short verses today, I want us to see three things, um, three points, if you will. And the first one is, uh, this is the right moment. The second point is, this is the right motivation. And the third point is, this is the right man. The right moment, the right motivation, and, and the right man. First of all, this is the right uh, moment. Up, up until this point in, uh, in, in the gospel story, Jesus has been very careful uh, to point out to people and to point out to other entities, demons, and things like that, that, that the time to go public has not yet come, right? We see this several different places um, in, 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 in Mark's gospel. The time to start the second part of Jesus' mission was not yet here. So look with me just at a, at a few of them. If you don't want to turn with me, you don't have to. You can, you can listen as I read them. But let's look back at Mark chapter 1, and we're going to see several times where Jesus tells people, his time has not yet come. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 25 says, And they went into uh, Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And it says they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. This demon knows who Jesus is. He declares who Jesus is, and Jesus tells him to be quiet. It's not time yet for him to be revealed. Skip over to verse 40, the same chapter, verse, verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And then verse 43 says, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer uh, for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So here Jesus is healing someone and tells him not to tell people what he has done. Uh, move over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirit saw Jesus, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And again, Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. It wasn't time yet for him to be, to be made known. In Mark chapter five, Jesus uh, heals this man's daughter, Jairus. He heals his daughter in chapter five, verse 38. He says, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly and when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, she's only sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And verse 43 says, but he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Again, he told them 
that no one should know what he had done. Chapter 7, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He sighed, and he said, um, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Just a couple of more. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus went out on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and answered him. He said, you are the Christ. Verse 30 says, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then finally, look at Mark chapter 9, verse 29. I'm sorry, uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could, could bleach them. And there appeared to them uh, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Verse 9 says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, Jesus charged them again, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so here in this last, uh, in this last uh, episode in Mark chapter 9, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone until he had risen. And so it's not that he doesn't want people to know, it's just that the timing is not right yet, right? He wants people to know who he is, but not quite yet. The timing's not right yet. And, and what we see today in our passage in Mark chapter 14 is the timing is right. The timing has come. It's, it's now. He says in, in verse 1, it's, it was now two days before the Passover. It was now two days before the Passover. In John chapter 12, 23, he's describing the same time period. He's describing the same event. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was now two days before the Passover, and the hour had come. It was now time for the Son of Man to be glorified. As I was thinking about this and thinking about Jesus' life, I was thinking about uh, a movie that I watched a long time ago when I was in high school called Braveheart. Many of you probably have seen Braveheart. Many of you probably like Braveheart. It's a, it's a war movie. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the time period, but it's in the probably 1500s, 1400s, 1600s, something like that. And it's set in Scotland. And it's about Scotland uh, trying, to, trying to earn their independence from England, right? And there's a scene where they're in, in a battle and, and, uh, and the, the, Scottish, uh, the Scotsmen are there. They're led by William Wallace and they're, they're on the battlefield and they, they really have nothing but swords and, and, and a, a few spears and some shields and things like that. And the, the whole British army is on the other side of the battlefield ready to charge them. And they have, uh, they have bows and arrows and they have uh, swords and things like that. But they also have a cavalry. And they have the, the British men on the cavalry and, and, and they begin to charge the, 
the Scottish, uh, the Scottish kind of ragtag army, and, and, and they're there, and they're waiting, and, and, and unbeknownst to the British, uh, the, Scots have, the, the Scotsmen have, have taken trees, and they've cut the trees down and made these huge, long spears, 10, 12, 15 feet long spears, and they sharpen the end of them, and they're laying on the ground. And, and there's this scene where they're there, and the, and the horses are, are charging at them, and they're coming, and they're coming, and they're coming, and, and William Wallace is leading the Scottish men, and he says, hold, and he keeps yelling, hold. Hold, hold, and, and right as they're, as they're coming, as they're just, just inches from them, he, he yells now, and they pull up the spears, and they dig them in the ground, and the horses charge them, and the horses hit the spears, and, and, and it kills the horses, and it protects the, the Scottishmen, and, now, and so now they're off the horses, and they can fight hand-to-hand combat the, 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 the way that they're, uh, that they're set up to do, but, but there's this scene where they're coming, and they're coming, and they're almost there, it's almost there, and he's saying, hold, not yet, not yet, wait, not yet, not yet, now, and it's like this with Jesus' life. He's healing people, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's telling parables, he's, he's, uh, he, he's, he's showing even who he is in, in certain instances as he's healing and driving out demons and things like that, but he's saying, wait, don't tell yet, wait, don't tell yet, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, it's not time yet. Now, Mark 14, 1 and 2, it's time. The time is here. It's, it's only two days before uh, the, the Passover, it's now time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why is it that this is the time? What's so special about the, about the Passover? Well, the Passover, if you remember, is a, is a festival the Jewish people celebrated based on a, on a historical event from the Old Testament. Uh, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12 in Exodus. And you remember the, the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt, and they had gotten there through, uh, through famine. God had taken them there to protect, to uh, save the people from famine. But now they're there, and they're, they've been enslaved for, for many years, and God's about to, to lead them out. And you remember the 10 plagues. He's, he's trying to to, uh, to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And he, and he sends these plagues on the nation, and the final plague is called the Passover. And so he, he warns them, he tells them, he tells Moses, through Moses, God tells the people that on a certain night, he's going to drive the people out. He says, on a certain night, I want you to get dressed. I want you to get dressed like you're leaving, like you're going somewhere. I want you to put your belt on. I want you to put your sandals on. I want you to put your tunics on. I want you to have your, have your, uh, your walking stick there with you. I want you to get ready. I want you to pretend like you're leaving. And I want you to take a lamb, a, a perfect lamb that's a year old, and I want you to, to, to kill that lamb, a spotless lamb. Kill that lamb and roast it a certain way, and I want you to eat it. And I want you to take bread and make bread with no yeast in it, with no leaven in it. Make flat bread, and I want you to eat the bread. I want you to, to, to roast the lamb because I'm about to bring you out. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11 to 13, it says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And here's what they should do with the blood of the lamb. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He says, take the lamb that you ate, take the blood of the lamb, Wipe it on your doorpost, on the sides of the door, on the top of the door, and cover your doorpost with, with blood. What's going to happen is tonight the angel of the Lord is going to come through. The angel of death is going to come through, and he's going to kill the firstborn. At midnight, the Lord did indeed do that. He passed through Egypt, and, and all the firstborn males, the people and the animals, were, were killed. Exodus says that, that Pharaoh woke up that night uh, in the middle of the night, and it says that there was this great cry, this great uh, mourning and crying and yelling in, in Egypt. It woke him up. And it says there was not a single house in Egypt where someone was not dead. 
except for the houses that have been covered in blood. And the, the Lord, the angel, had passed over those houses. And so Pharaoh called for Moses, and he called for Aaron, and he told them, he said, take the Hebrew people and leave, with, take them with all their livestock, with all their possessions, and I want you to leave my land. I'm going to set them free. I want them out of here, right? And they would celebrate this festival every year in Jerusalem. And now it's two days before the Passover, and the scribes and the priests are about to uh, find a way to arrest Jesus. They want to put him to death. The time's right. The moment is right. God's about to do something here. He's about to put Jesus to death on the cross in just a couple days. He's connecting Jesus' death to the Passover. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, your boasting is not good. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Right? Paul's connecting Jesus' death to the Passover, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing, and that's what Mark's showing us here in Mark, in Mark chapter 14, is that it's two days before the Passover, it's time. It's two days before the Passover, this is the moment that we've been waiting for. This is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. One commentator, R.T. France, he says this, he says it's symbolically appropriate that it should be played out at Passover, the festival which marked the original establishment of Israel as the covenant people of God rescued from slavery in Egypt, there will be a new Passover and a new covenant for the new people of God. Finally, after several years of preaching, after many years of, of teaching and healing and serving, now the right moment's here. The final act of the drama of redemption is about to begin here in Mark chapter 14. So we have the right moment. It's toward the end of Jesus' life. It's now, this is kind of what he's been waiting for, living, living for, um, this is the right moment. But we've also finally got the, the right motivation, right? The second part of chapter, or, or verse one says, uh, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him and kill him, okay? We're gonna come back to that stealth part in a minute. But it says that they're looking for a way to arrest him and even to kill him. One commentator, Alan Cole, he, he says this. He says, here we have the most definite decision so far made, Jesus must die, and as soon as possible. All that the chief priests now lack is an opportunity. The motivation's there, they're ready. All that they lack is an opportunity. This is the, the culmination of what we've been seeing here over the last several chapters of Mark's gospel. In, uh, look back with me in Mark chapter 11. Just one page back, or two pages back in my Bible. Mark chapter 11, look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. This is the disciples coming to Jerusalem. This is Jesus entering the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them. And he said to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. We remember Pastor Josh preaching this just a few weeks ago. Listen to verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes, the same people that are here in Mark 14, right? The chief priests and the scribes heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. 
Several chapters back, chapter 11, they're, they're now seeking a way to destroy him because they're afraid of him because all the crowds are following him. Skip over to chapter 12, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and they went away. Again, here the, the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees are afraid of Jesus, but they're wanting to arrest him. They're seeking to get rid of him, right? They're fed up with him. They're, the motivation's finally there. They're ready now. They're fed up with him. They're fed up with him challenging their traditions. They're fed up with him challenging their rituals. They're fed up with him making them look foolish in public, and they're ready now to arrest him, to destroy him, even to kill him. Let's look back at a, at a few of these places. Again, you can turn there if you want, or you can listen if you want, but, but look, at, look at some of these confrontations that Jesus has had with the Pharisees and with the scribes and with the uh, priests and the Sadducees that, that's led up to this. Listen to Mark chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, they were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came uh, from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and the washing of pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Verse 5 says, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, listen to this. Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. These, these leaders of the religion came to Jesus in public. They were confronting him in public, asking, why do your disciples not do what they're supposed to do? Why do your disciples not follow the traditions that we, that we follow? And Jesus has the audacity to, to quote scripture at them and call them hypocrites in public to their faces and in front of an audience. He goes on, though. Look at chapter 8, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, Jesus cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Again, he's with his disciples now, but he's still in public, and he's chastising, and he's warning against the Pharisees. He's warning against the leaders of the religion. This leaven that he's talking about is a, is a yeast. It changes the nature of, of, of the bread, and, and once it's in the bread, it cannot be separated from the bread. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking about this again, and he, and he explains what he means. In chapter 12, verse 1 of, of Luke, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so again, he's publicly calling the Pharisees hypocrites. Look at Mark chapter 12, uh, look down to verse 38. Mark chapter 12, 38. In his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long, long robes, and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. These leaders are fed up with Jesus. They're fed up with him warning the people against him. They're fed up with him leading the people to, uh, to, to not follow them. They're fed up with all that Jesus has to say and they've finally gotten to the point you know, you, you hear the saying sometimes, I've had it up to here, right? 
They've headed up to here. And now they're seeking a way to arrest him. They're seeking a way even to kill him. They were through with Jesus. They had already tried to trick him. They tried to trap him in, in public debate several times. And, and each time they did that, they only ended up looking foolish themselves. They challenged his authority only to have him uh, turn the tables on them and dare them to disavow John the Baptist in the midst of his followers. Every time they try to, uh, every time they try to deal with Jesus publicly, he makes them look foolish. They had put up with his warnings. They had put up with him, uh, his parables that, that were mass references to him. They had put up with his challenges. They had put up with him challenging the way that they were running the temple. They had had enough. They're ready to arrest him. They're ready to destroy him. They're even ready to kill him. It seems really bad for Jesus, right? It seems really bad for Jesus until we remember that we're told about this same event from another perspective as well, right? The motivation's there. The, the, uh, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the, and the priests and the Sadducees, they have the motivation to arrest Jesus and kill him and, and, and destroy him. But when Matthew tells this same story, as Pastor Josh read just a moment ago, when Matthew tells this same story, he, he includes an event or he includes a detail that Mark leaves out, right? In, in Matthew chapter 26 that Josh read, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to the disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In Mark's gospel, we're not told that, right? In Mark's gospel, we're just told that the, the, uh, the priests and the, and the scribes are looking for a way to arrest him, but Matthew includes the detail that it's, it's not just them going to arrest Jesus, but Jesus is going to be delivered up to them. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who's going to deliver him up, and our, our first thought might be to, to Judas, right? Judas delivers him up in the, in the garden, and we'll, and we'll see that in, in Mark's gospel here in a couple of weeks when we get to it. Our first thought might be to Jewish, but, or to Judas, but really, there's more going on here than that. Jesus is about to be delivered up to the priest and to the scribes. They're about to take him. They're not going to take him. He's going to be delivered up to them, and not just by Judas. On three different occasions, on three different occasions in Mark's gospel, Mark has, uh, shows us where Jesus has told us that this moment was coming. This is not a surprise to him. This is not something that's caught him off guard. Jesus knows this is coming. Look, look back at, at Mark chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 31. He's talking to the, to the disciples here, and he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, right? That, that's what we've heard, the chief priests and the scribes, and he'll be killed, and then after three days he'll be raised again. Jesus knows this is coming. Mark chapter 9, he says, uh, he says the same thing again. He says, they went on from there and they passed through Galilee in verse 30, and he did not want anyone to know in verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. Finally, in Mark chapter 10, we see the third time that Jesus predicts his own death. In verse 32, he says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the, ele the, the 12 with him again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And here's what he said. He said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they'll spit on him, and they'll flog him, 
and they will kill him, and then after three days, he will rise again. The scribes and the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are fed up with Jesus. Their motivation is to kill him, to destroy him, to get rid of him. And, and yet Jesus knows this is going to happen. And, and even more than him knowing it's going to happen, this has been planned to happen, right? Listen, listen to, Mark's, to, uh, to Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, this Jesus, he's talking to Jewish people now. This is after Jesus has been crucified. This is after Jesus has come back to life. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching this sermon to Jewish people, and he says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. Right? Not only did Jesus know it was going to happen, but in Acts chapter 2, Peter tells us it was planned to happen. This was part of God's plan. In Acts chapter 4, Peter is preaching another sermon, and he says, For truly, in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The priests and the scribes had, were fed up with Jesus. They'd had all they were going to take. They were ready to kill him. They were ready to destroy him. They were ready to arrest him. And yet they were only doing what God had planned for them to do. They were only doing what God had planned to take place. Jesus' mission was not at all being hijacked in any way, right? Jesus's, his mission was not being derailed by their plan to arrest him. He wasn't, it wasn't being, being messed up by, his, by their desire to, to ultimately kill him. That's the very reason he was born. Jesus was born for this very purpose, and his entire life had been leading up to this very moment. In fact, you may remember, and in, in, we're told in Matthew's gospel, even before he was born, an angel came to Joseph, and he told Joseph, he was talking about Jesus' birth, and he said, you shall call his name Jesus, right? Remember why he was called Jesus? He said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's the angel talking to Joseph even before Jesus is born. The reason Jesus was born was so that the priests and the scribes would put him to death, so that they would kill him as a way of saving his people from their sins. The priests and the scribes were motivated by anger, by jealousy, by revenge, those kind of things. They were planning to destroy Jesus. They were planning to, to, to put a complete end to his ministry and get rid of him once for all. At the same time, on the other hand, God was about to use their sin. God had even planned their sin, and he was about to use it for his purpose of saving his people and glorifying himself. Listen, we can know this for sure. If God is able to take the absolute worst sin that's ever been committed, right, the arrest and beating and humiliation and death of Jesus, if God's able to take the worst sin that's ever been committed and use that to accomplish the greatest of all goods, our salvation, then we can be assured that whatever happens to us, as bad as it might be, God's able to use it and turn it for our good. God's able to use it and turn it to make us into the image of his son, to make us into the people that he wants us to be. The priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these people were, were motivated for evil. They were motivated by sin. They were wanting to destroy Jesus, kill Jesus, arrest Jesus. It looks bad, 
And yet the whole time God's on the throne, the whole time God knows exactly what's happening, the whole time God's saying, that's right, that's right, but I'm going to accomplish what I want to accomplish. And Jesus knows that as well. This is the right moment. It's the right point in Jesus' life. This is the right motivation. The scribes and Pharisees have finally had enough. They're going to they're gonna take their, take their, they're gonna make their move, and yet God's motivated to save his people. It's the right moment, the right motivation, and finally it's the right man. Finally, Jesus himself is the right man. The priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him. They were wanting to kill him, but look what it says in, at, the, at the end of that verse there, verse 1, in the middle of where it says they're going to they're gonna arrest him and kill him, and yet it says they're going to do it by stealth, right? They're going to do it by stealth because, verse 2 tells us, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar during the, the people. And the, and the reason that the Passover, the reason that this festival uh, created a, a challenge for them is, is because uh, there were so many people in Jerusalem, Right? There, there, there's really two reasons. One reason is because there were so many people in Jerusalem, and they were, they were right to be worried. Historically, there have been riots that happened in Jerusalem during the festival of Passover. And, and, and so they were right to be worried. Um, there have been problems in, in, in Jerusalem before, and one reason is because during the Passover feast, Jerusalem was filled with people. Some have estimated that the, the normal population of Jerusalem was about 30,000 people, and during Passover, it, it swelled to nearly 3 million people. Now, that might, be a, that might be a big exaggeration. There's not a lot of really good historical records from, from that time on this topic. Um, that might be a big exaggeration, but there are others who have suggested more than that. 3 million is kind of, kind of in the middle, but regardless of whether that's an exaggeration or not, the point is that there were lots and lots and lots of people in Jerusalem. So many people that often, uh, often kind of control was, was lost. It was hard to be controlled. And one reason so many people were there is because this was a mandatory feast. Uh, Passover was one of the mandatory feasts, meaning that all Jewish males within a certain geographic area of Jerusalem were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And beyond that, all Jewish people, no matter where they lived in the world, kind of had it as a life goal to go to Jerusalem at least once in their lifetime for the feast, to celebrate the feast. And the reason that, that Jerusalem was so important is because in order to celebrate the Passover feast, really the lamb, um, really, uh, if you're going to do it the right way, the lamb could only be slain, could only be killed in the temple. And the meal could only be eaten in the city of Jerusalem. So you have all these people there that are gathered on, this, on these days. So the scribes and the priests and the people are afraid of killing him. Another reason that they were afraid to arrest him and take him by force at that moment was because as this Passover feast is happening, remember what the Passover is. The Passover is, is God passing over the people of Israel and, and killing the, the Egyptians, but the purpose was to drive the people out of Egypt, right? And so a lot of the Jewish people saw the Passover festival kind of like as an Independence Day, um, kind of like we celebrate July the 4th. And, and this is the day that, that God had created the, the nation of Israel, right? And so at this time in Mark chapter 14, uh, the, the Hebrew people are now under slavery again in a sense, right? They're not slaves the way they were in Egypt, but they're being oppressed by the Roman people. And so during, during the Passover feast, a lot of these kind of thoughts are coming up and, and, and there's, a, there's some, some, uh, some, some difficulty there. The, the, the uh, emotions are running high and people are, are thinking about their, their, their freedom and, and, and those kind of things. And so it wouldn't be too far out of question for, 
for someone to kind of take control and, and lead the people into a frenzy and, and attack the Romans and try to regain their independence again or something to that effect. And so the, the priests and the scribes were afraid to do anything that, that might rile the people up. They're afraid to come against Jesus because he is with the people, right? Jesus was a polarizing figure at this time. Either you loved Jesus or you hated Jesus. There really was no in-between unless you didn't know about Jesus. If you knew about him, either you, either you loved him or you hated him. He had, made, he, had, he had made inflammatory statements. He had acted in inflammatory ways. Many people followed him, and they were convinced that he was the, the Messiah that they had all been, been waiting for, longing for for so long, the one who was going to usher in the kingdom of, of God and deliver them. Other people thought that Jesus was a troublemaker, they thought he ate with the wrong kind of people. They thought he spent time with the wrong kind of people. They thought that he treated the temple and the religious leaders with contempt. And so those people that knew Jesus, they either loved him or they hated him. He was a, a, a polarizing figure. There was really no middle ground. And so they were afraid to arrest him. They were afraid that his followers would take arms and attack them. In fact, that's what we see happen in the garden when they come to arrest Jesus, right? If we know the story going forward, there is one that pulls out his sword and, and tries to defend Jesus. Jesus was a polarizing figure, but that's also still true today. There are those in our world today that, that try, to, try, to, try to tame Jesus, right? They try to remake Jesus into, into a domesticated kind of moral teacher. Um, they, 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 they try to make him into their image and kind of try, try to kind of control his movement. But that's not who Jesus is. We're not here this morning to worship because we believe he was a good moral teacher. We don't believe he left us with some good suggestions on how to live our lives and, and how to interact with other people, right? We're here because we're convinced beyond a doubt that this Jesus that was delivered up to death, delivered up to the, to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the priests, this Jesus, we are, we're, we're here because we're convinced he was the creator of the universe. From the very moment that creation began, Jesus was there. We believe that he never began to exist. We believe that he always existed. In fact, we believe that he is the very source of life itself. We're here worshiping this morning because we believe that he came to his own creation, became part of it, taking on our flesh, human flesh, so that he might pay the debt that we humans owe because of our sin. We're here worshiping this morning because we believe that he really was physically born of a specific human woman at a specific time in history. We believe that he had a real mom and a real adoptive dad. We believe that he really did grow in age and he really did grow in size and he really did grow in, in, in wisdom, as the Bible said. We believe that he lived a perfect life, that he always obeyed what God said. He always obeyed the will of God the Father, we believe that he never sinned even in the slightest way. We're here worshiping because we believe that he spent several years preaching and teaching the truth of who God is. We believe that, uh, that he taught us what God is like, that he taught us what God is for and what God is against. We believe that he left a record of his preaching and his word. And we're here worshiping this morning because we believe that at the exact right moment in history, at the exact time when it should have happened, the exact moment that the Passover was nearing in a specific year in the history of Israel, we believe that Jesus allowed himself to be given up to the priests and to the scribes for what they thought was his destruction 
but for what was actually his greatest triumph. We're here worshiping this morning because we believe that through Jesus' death, his people are made alive. We believe that through his arrest, through his being bound to a cross, we're set free from the penalties and the power of our sin. We're here worshiping this morning because we believe that three days after his death, his body came back to life and he walked out of the tomb. And we're here worshiping right now this morning because we believe that right at this very moment, he is seated on the throne of heaven right now, ruling over his creation and ruling over his people. In Mark chapter 14, Mark tells us that there was a week in the history of Jerusalem where God brought together the right moment, the right motivation, and the right man. And because of that, we're here worshiping him this morning as his redeemed people in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning that you are wise and powerful and strong and good and loving and kind and merciful and gracious toward us. Father, we are here this morning worshiping you because you have done what we could not do. Father, we're here worshiping you this morning because you took what others meant for evil, what others meant for harm, what others meant for bad, and and Father, you used it for our good. Father, we're here worshiping you this morning because you took our sin and you laid it on our Savior. And you put him to death. And he fully paid for those sins and you brought him back to life. God, it seems kind of trite to say thank you for that, but that's what we say, thank you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who, who love you, who follow you, and who seek to lead others to do the same. God, we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.